1 Timothy 4, verses 6 to 16. If you point these things out to the brothers, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus, brought up in the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you've followed. Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourselves, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance, and for this we labour and strive, that we've put our hope in the living God, who is the saviour of all men, and especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Don't let anyone look down on you because you're young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to preaching and teaching. Do not neglect your gift, which was given you through a prophetic message when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Well, thank you very much indeed, Paul. And uh, let me add my welcome to Nathan's. It's great to see you. Uh, very, very uh, warmly welcome. This morning, uh, we come really to the sort of turning point uh, in the letters. We head into the second half of the book. And uh, as we do, I want to draw your attention to a significant change in emphasis in what Paul is saying. We've already seen that the letter is addressed to Timothy personally. So 1 Timothy is a letter from the apostle to a pastor, which is why 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus are known as the pastoral epistles. But we've seen as well that the church that Timothy is pastoring is very much in Paul's mind as he writes. As he addresses Timothy, Paul is expecting the church to be listening in very carefully. Just to take a little example from the week just gone, when our Defence Secretary Ben Wallace stated or boasted that NATO could easily defeat Vladimir Putin's Russia, or words to that effect, I couldn't possibly repeat in this context what he did say, but you know the, the kind of gist of it. When he said that, he wasn't speaking to President Putin, he was speaking to a bunch of soldiers, but I think he would expect President Putin to hear what he said very loud and clear, because the Russians are always listening in. And they are, apparently. So in the same way, Paul is speaking to Timothy, but he expects the church in Ephesus to hear what he's saying very clearly. So far, though, Paul has said surprisingly little to Timothy directly. Up to this point in the letter, there have only been three occasions where Paul has used a second-person singular verb to directly address Timothy himself. 
But this all changes now in chapter 4. In our passage this morning, there are eight second-person singular verbs. Eight times Paul addresses Timothy directly, not the whole church. And in between 11 to 16, there were no fewer than 10 imperatives addressed to Timothy. Yes, 10 commandments from Paul to Timothy. You must be like this, Timothy. You must do this, Timothy. You must not do that, Timothy. And so it goes on. And the goal of these commands is spelled out for us very clearly in verse 6. In verse 6, he says, This is what you must do, Timothy, to be a good minister, literally a good servant of Christ Jesus. Now, that word good might be a little bland in English. It's the kind of word the, the English teacher is always trying to get you to think of an alternative for, isn't it? But it's actually one of Paul's favorite words in 1 Timothy, and it's very powerful. The law is good if used properly, 1 verse 8. Spiritual warfare Timothy is involved in is the good fight, 118. Praying for rulers, as we have done this morning, is good, 2 verse 3. Serving as an overseer is good, 3 verse 1. And 4, 4, everything God created is good. So if something is good in this context, it means it conforms to God's plan. It is what God wants to happen for that stewardship of God, that God is bringing order to the whole world that we saw in chapter 1, that plan of God that God is bringing to the world through local churches. In other words, if God's plan for his world is to be fulfilled, here's the thing, churches need good leaders. And you know what that means? It means two things. It means that this has to be one of the scariest and hardest and most challenging sermons I've ever had to preach. Because here in the Bible is a gold standard of what church leadership looks like. This is about me and what I'm doing with my life as a church leader and others who lead, those we prayed for earlier, and I hope others who are listening this morning who will lead in future. And the question this chapter throws at us is, are we any good? Are we good servants of Jesus? Do we conform to God's pattern? Are we doing what God wants? And if you're thinking about leadership at some point in the future, can you see yourself pulling this off? Can you be a good servant? It's very, very challenging. But the second thing is this. And you need to listen very carefully here. This may be one of the hardest sermons I've ever had to preach. But at the very same time, it's one of the most important sermons you will ever hear. Why is that? Well, notice that little phrase, these things, which actually occurs three times in the passage. And it's what I've used to structure the sermon that you'll see on the outline. In verse 6, Timothy is to point these things out to the church family in Ephesus. In verse 11, he is commanded to teach these things to the church. And in verse 15, it's the same phrase again, translated these matters, but it's the same phrase. He must be diligent in these things, persevere in them right to the end. Now, what are these things? Well, I take it that these things refers really to everything that Paul has said in the first half of the letter, but especially... The key truth, 
that kind of central key verse in 316, which he calls the mystery of godliness, once hidden, now revealed and declared and held out to the world by the church. And if you were here two weeks ago, you will have heard Nathan very clearly, very helpfully explain what this godliness is all about. That it is more than just a kind of a moral life. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. His life, death, resurrection, and the out-preaching of that gospel to the world, and life lived in the light of it. That is what Paul means by godliness. The gospel of Jesus Christ, and life lived in the light of that gospel. No surprise then that the main task of the church leader involves teaching these things, that truth. And in doing so, as we saw last week, in the face of a kind of permanent battle against false teaching, which is always seeking to infiltrate the church. So you can see, can't you, why this passage matters. It matters for me because I am a church leader. It matters for all who are involved in leadership of the church because it tells us what it means to be good leaders. But it also matters for the church Because this tells you what kind of leaders we need as a healthy church. What they should be doing. And it really matters if you're a visitor this morning. You might just have been thinking, well, this is one for me to tune out because it's about church leadership and church and this is kind of periphery to my life. But actually, this is crucially important for you to understand Because you'll get from this passage what a Christian church is all about, what our priorities are and should be, and why. Because it matters to Jesus. And this is why Paul ends, notice, on that rather daunting phrase in verse 16. How much does this matter? It matters for salvation, for the salvation of the leader and for the salvation of those he teaches. It matters to every one of us here. This may be a passage... A rare passage, actually, in the Bible, addressed to the pastor about Christian leadership, but it is everybody's business. So let's look then at what makes a good servant of Jesus in the three headings you'll see on the sheet, his training in the truth, his teaching of the truth, and then his perseverance to the end. Let's start with his training in the truth in 6 to 10. Look with me carefully at verse 6. If you point these things out to the brothers, you'll be a good minister of Christ Jesus, brought up in the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed. Martin Luther said that this verse captures the entire theme of the letter, so we better make sure we understand it. The key to the verse is how to translate that phrase, brought up. The word itself means trained. It's one of the training words of the Bible, And we'll see another one in a moment, but this one contains ideas of feeding and nourishing and healthy growth. Now look at that word in verse 6, and our translation makes it look, doesn't it, as if this training is something that has happened in the past, perhaps in Timothy's youth or childhood. But the word is actually in the present tense and suggests a continuous ongoing journey. So not having been brought up, but being brought up. Being trained, fed, nourished. And that difference is very important. Because what it means is that it's as Timothy does the ministry of teaching, it's while he does that ministry that he is being trained 
in the truth. It's not that he's been trained and now he gets to do the ministry. It is as he does the ministry, he is being trained. Now, this is very important. I want to underline it. Four things to notice. Firstly, this is important in how we think through how we train gospel workers. My wife and I had the privilege of going to residential theological college for four years, where I undertook four years of full-time training. It's a very good thing. It provides a great foundation and the tools for a lifetime of ministry. And we believe in sending people to theological college when we can. But actually, you come out of theological college not really knowing how to do ministry. It's a funny thing. It's not until you actually do the ministry of leading and loving people, real flesh and blood people, and when you face that sort of scrambled eggs, messiness of life in the wild, that you really start to be trained to be ministry. And this has implications for the way we train people. This is why our ministry training scheme is run in-house, why we don't just sort of send our ministry trainees off to be trained elsewhere. And it's why our ministry trainees are not just sort of sitting in a classroom reading books, but they're out there doing one-to-ones and learning alongside us and doing all sorts of practical things because that's how you train the gospel minister. And what it means is that if we want to see, as Richard prayed earlier, the next generation of gospel workers trained, which surely is a crucial concern of ours as a church, then we have to let them get on and do it, don't we? And that means if you are a young person who may aspire to be a Timothy in the future, of what, which I hope there are many in this room, then it means don't wait until you've been trained, until you've done all the equipped training courses and you've done four years at Bible college. Get on and do it now. Crack on and do it. However old you are, exercise the spiritual muscles that you've been given because that is how you get trained. Secondly, this tells us how gospel ministers keep going. It turns out, as you read the passage, that devoting yourself to the ministry of word and prayer and church leadership is, in fact, the hardest work imaginable. Charles Swindoll, in his commentary on this passage, says this. He says, many church members would be shocked at how often the thought of resigning crosses a pastor's mind especially if he is serving a congregation in which encouragement is rare. Well, I have a privilege, I think, of serving a church family who give plenty of encouragement, but despite that, I always get to Saturday night and convince myself that I'm in the wrong job, that somebody else could surely do this better, and amazed that after 20 years of doing it, it doesn't get any easier. I know I've said this before, but I do look as I see the buses driving around town. Maybe being a bus driver would be just a little bit easier. No offense to bus drivers. I'm sure it has its stresses. But the point is, every week I feel under-equipped for this job. And I'm not alone in this. I was meeting during the week with one of our trainee preachers to review a draft sermon. And he was telling me how, and he could hardly kind of... Put it into words is how excruciatingly painful he had found the work of preparing the talk. He'd spent 30 or 40 hours on it and he'd felt defeated by it. He said it was utterly overwhelming. What am I doing wrong? And I said, you're not doing anything wrong. This is what it's actually like. Not just the intellectual battle, but the spiritual battle and the physical battle and the mental battle. This is what it's like week in, 
week out. Which is why one of my former trainers at Bible College used to say, don't worry, the first 50 years are the hardest. What an encouragement that was. (laughs) Well, if that's the case, how do you keep going? How do any pastors make it to the end? How do you avoid adding to the alarming statistics, and they are alarming, of pastors and church leaders burning out and dropping out, which they are all over the place? See, the feeling of weakness and inadequacy and weariness and relentlessness can actually be overwhelming. I was listening to a dairy farmer talking on the TV the other day, just how relentless dairy farming is, because the cows always need milking. You can never just take a time off and say, well, just go and milk yourselves. Well, actually, some of them can, because they have robots to do it now, but even then, the cows still need milking, and Sundays always come round, don't they? And so the feeling of inadequacy and weariness, and particularly remember, as this is in the face of the false teaching... And remember that behind the false teaching is Satan and his lies. You can feel like, you know, those Ukrainian soldiers, you see that picture that's on every newspaper of the Ukrainian soldiers with their little little guns on the bridge. Just looks so pathetic, didn't it? So hopelessly pathetic in the face of the Russian army's might and tanks. That's how it feels. Well, there is plenty of wisdom available on this these days and actually... Most of it depends, I think, on you. If I can just use that us and you language, I don't often do that, but on you, the church family, sort of working out how you can help your leaders and their spouses and their families, very important to say that, how you can help us make it to the long haul, for the long haul, which is actually what healthy churches need because ministry is a long-term thing. And I thoroughly, and with no embarrassment at all, recommend Christopher Rash's book, the book your pastor wishes you would read, but is too embarrassed to ask. I'm not too embarrassed to ask, as Nathan has said a few times, uh, we need you to read this. And if you haven't read it, can I commend it to you? But in verse 6, I think there is something else that gets overlooked. Verse 6 tells you that it's as you're immersed in gospel ministry that you're actually being trained, that is fed, nourished, so you can continue for another week. And this makes sense because if you think about it, what we're teaching is the word of God, the word that itself gives life. I've never been one to compartmentalize my Bible reading in terms of sort of morning devotions and then what I do for preparation, I just see it as all one because it is the word of God that feeds you whether you're reading that word first thing in the morning that's got nothing to do with your ministry or whether you're reading it to prepare for a sermon. It's still the word of God. And if you are someone who teaches the word in whatever capacity, as a preacher, growth group leader, grub group teacher, one-to-one teacher, a good rule to remember is apply the text, sorry, apply yourself wholly to the text and apply the text wholly to yourself. It's a good rule of thumb for any Bible teaching. Apply yourself wholly to the text and apply the text wholly to yourself because then you'll get fed and nourished and nurtured and challenged as you are feeding others. It's as you do the work 
that you'll be trained. And remember that the boss, the one you're serving, is not some hard-nosed CEO who's trying to squeeze every drop of life and energy out of you, but it's Jesus Christ who is gentle and lowly, who is actually putting his life into you as you serve him. That's who you're working for. And I want to just commend this. I think this has been so helpful to me uh, to think about this week because I think this is true of ministry of every type and for every Christian. So to give you a trivial example from uh, the past week, I was having a drink with a friend in the pub. Uh, actually, the pub just behind us, it was better than I was expecting. And that's a, another, another topic of conversation. Uh, we can talk about Lancaster pubs over coffee if you like. But anyway, we were having a conversation in the pub and the conversation turned very naturally to Jesus and the gospel. And after some time, I, I tried to summarize what I was saying uh, on the back of an envelope that we happened to have using six boxes. And you know what? There was me and my friend. And actually, there were three people in that conversation. Not the landlord. He was sort of doing something else. <laughs> but there were only the two of us in the pub, I should, uh, I should say. But there were three of us in that conversation. There was me, my friend, and the Lord Jesus, whose word I was speaking. As you minister the word of God to people, Jesus ministers to you. He feeds you. He helps you. So ultimately, strangely, counterintuitively, as we pour ourselves out in ministry... Jesus is pouring himself into us. That's how we keep going. So how do you keep going in ministry? I think the answer from here is you keep going in ministry. You keep doing it. And I'm aware, I'm very much aware of the horrible reality of burnout, mental, spiritual, physical burnout. And when that happens, because you've just pushed things too far and forgotten that you are human... When that happens, taking time out from ministry can be very wise. But I suggest we don't take time out forever because in the final analysis, serving Jesus by serving others, pouring yourself out for others is how Jesus then pours himself into you and sustains you for the long haul. Well, I hope that's helpful. But there's a third thing we need to note about Timothy's training in the truth, that it must be the truth that he is taking in. If you're going to nourish other people, you must be nourished yourself. Because look at verse 7, and you'll see the counterpart to being nourished by the word is actually avoiding something that Paul calls godless myths and old wives' tales. This is clearly a reference to the false teaching that was in the air that we saw last week, and we'll see in chapter 6, and we saw in chapter 1. And concerns, remember the kind of detailed arguments and genealogies and shallow little controversies and kind of nitpicky arguments and theories. And how does that translate to our day? Well, I wonder if in our day of information overload, the thing that must nourish us must be the Word of God. Blogs and chat rooms and Facebook groups and YouTubers and podcasts and conspiracy theories and celebrity preachers and journals and blogs and more podcasts and so on and so forth, they all have their place, but they're not going to nourish you. It's a little bit like snacking on candy floss. 
I quite like candy floss. But it's not going to be something to live on. If you are going to feed people, if you're going to train people, you're going to speak the word to people, whether that's your own children or somebody in your growth group or a friend or a whole church, then if all you eat is theological candy floss, because you're always on the blogs and the chat rooms and the podcasts and the latest conspiracy theories, then you're not going to have much to say. I love the saying, never trust a thin cook. Applies here, doesn't it? Somebody who loves the word and takes it in is going to be somebody who can feed other people. But there's one final thing we need to know about Timothy's training in the church, in the truth. It's going to be very hard, but infinitely worthwhile. Look at the end of verse 7. Train yourself, rather, to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. And for this we labor and strive that we have put our hope in God, in the living God who is a savior of all men, and especially, or I think perhaps we could translate that as namely, of those who believe. Now in the Greek this time, the training word in verse 7 and 8 is a different word and it's the word from which we get the word gymnastics or gymnasium. And therefore, this training word is a word that conjures up not the sort of the feeding and nourishing kind of training, but the sweaty bodies straining and puffing in the weights room or on the treadmill as an athlete prepares for something that is going to take some rigor, a marathon, a boxing match, maybe an Ironman, or just to feel a little bit better in your own body. That's the kind of training we're talking about. And notice he says we're to train in godliness, verse 7. Train to be godly is a serious mistranslation. It is training towards the godliness, the gospel, and the life of the gospel that we've been seeing through the book. Because remember, godliness is more than just the moral life. It's more than your character. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ, his life, death, and resurrection, and life lived in the light of the gospel. That is what we are to train towards. And so look at what Paul is saying in verse 8. He's giving us a contrast between the value of physical training and the infinitely greater value of training towards godliness. Now, Paul is not knocking physical training. As somebody has worked out, apparently uh, someone with a bit of time on their hands, I suspect Paul has walked at this point in his ministry, just looking at the journeys he did in the New Testament, 15,000 miles. Paul knew the value of physical training. He was not a couch potato. And few of us in our health-obsessed society will need persuading that bodily fitness is a very good thing. You know, the endorphins do work, don't they? But be careful, because... The endorphins are addictive, and you can come to rely on them. But if physical training is valuable for this life, then how much more valuable in training is training for godliness? Because notice Paul says it has value for this life and for the life to come. How does godliness have value for this life? Well, we're going to see as we work through the rest of the letter. Godliness will affect how we care for elderly relatives, how we handle money, how we live in the workplace, how we think about family life, and so on. 
But Paul says godliness lasts beyond the present into the life to come because notice in verse 10, the heart of godliness is trusting God for salvation. So you can be the fittest person in the gym. You can be first on the park run. You can be Mr. Iron Man himself. But what Paul is saying is you're going to end up as the fittest body in the graveyard. And what good will that do you in the end? What you do in life echoes in eternity, says Russell Crowe's Maximus in Gladiator. But what does echo in eternity, what does carry through? Godliness, Paul says. The gospel of Jesus lived in light of the gospel. That is the thing that is worth toiling for, striving for, sweating for. Well, that is his training. Second thing we see in 11 to 14 is his teaching of the truth. For the second time, Paul says to Timothy in verse 11, command and teach these things. And then, and I think here is when he really gets the heart of Timothy's ministry, he unpacks that in three further steps. His example, his teaching, and his priority. Firstly, his example, verse 12. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. Now, we don't exactly know how Timothy was. Uh, People estimate somewhere in his 30s, perhaps mid-30s would be a good guess. But he's young compared to Paul, and there were evidently people in the church who resisted his authority because they were older. Now, in one sense, this is quite natural because with age comes seniority. If you're from an Asian culture, you will understand this better than we will because age is so respected and so significant. And we might not realize how hard it would have been for that church to have a relatively young elder. It's actually a kind of contradiction in terms, isn't it? But he is the elder. He is the leader. Paul has put him in charge of this church. And what is a young man like Timothy to do when people are looking down on him? He can't just kind of climb up on a big pulpit like this and say, stop looking down on me. He can't order people to stop looking down on him. It doesn't work like that. So look at verse 12. What he is to do is to set an example. He is actually to be somebody who you wouldn't want to look down on. Because he is to embody in his life the very gospel and godliness he is teaching. Now this is when we need to remember the false teachers and why chapter 4, 1 to 5 flows right into this passage. Because I think in verse 12 it's probably best to understand these five examples as a kind of inversion of the false teachers' lives who, as we saw last week, were embodying their false gospel in their lives. Unlike the false teachers then, whose speech was the kind of a shallow babble of controversy, Timothy is to exemplify weighty, sober speech, maybe in his conversations, we'll see that in 6 verse 20, But the word speech here is logos. It's the word which in the pastoral epistles always means really his teaching. Secondly, unlike the false teacher's strange ascetic hypocrisy that we saw last week, Timothy is to exemplify a godly life. And this, I think, means enjoying God's gift of creation. Uh, Later, for example, Paul's going to encourage him to drink a little wine for the sake of his health and a life that embodies the righteousness of the gospel. 
Thirdly, unlike the self-serving greed of the false teachers, he is to demonstrate sacrificial love for others. Fourthly, while their consciences have been seared so you cannot trust them, Timothy is to be faithful, which means trustworthy, sincere. And fifthly, in a church that has developed an unhealthy view of sex and marriage, he is to be a model of purity. Now this is a good reminder that character... And provenness of character is so highly uh, rated by Paul. It actually gets much more weight in the qualifications of elders and deacons in chapter 3 than skills and abilities, doesn't it? So if we were to put an advert in a newspaper for a pastor or a church leader or a youth worker or a family's worker or a woman's worker or whatever it is, the chances are we would kind of list the skills, wouldn't we? This is the sort of thing they've got to do. But Paul would major on the character. This is the kind of person they've got to be. It's the character that matters because of example. And this is a scary thought, isn't it, for anyone who wants to be a leader because you realize actually that the example, the life, is part of your job description. Not, as we'll see in verse 16, that you've got to be perfect. You are a human with struggles and doubts and failings and no one will be more aware of these than you are. But part of the job description is to remember that people are watching you. And they're watching you to see if you're not a hypocrite. They're watching you to see that your life matches the message you are proclaiming, not perfectly, but in a way that the gap is closing. So the way you speak, the way you pray, the way you manage your household, the way you bring up your children, the way you... Drive your car. Yesterday I was in the car and I was treated appallingly by another van driver who made me reverse half a mile, literally half a mile, when he could have reversed about 50 yards. And I could feel, as I, as I was reversing all the way, I was, I was feeling the anger boiling up inside me. You know that something about driving, that, and I was, I was ready to wind down the window and just give him a piece of, you know... And then I remembered this passage. (laughs) I'm a a pastor of a church. Lancaster's a small town. We have a very distinctive car. (laughs) I kept the window firmly wound up and I just smiled politely (laughs) as he drove past. People are watching. The way you practice hospitality. The way you do life. Example. Tremendously important in Paul's thinking. Secondly, though, his teaching, verse 13. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. Here I think we get to the heart of Timothy's ministry, which is to teach the truth to the church so that godliness can multiply throughout the church. This is what he is to devote himself to. So let's take a closer look at verse 13. Firstly, notice that Paul says Timothy is to devote himself to these things until he, Paul, comes to Ephesus. Now, I don't know about you, but I I think that's a perplexing thing to say that we can easily kind of skim over. See, why until he comes? Does it mean that while Paul is away, Timothy is to exercise this teaching ministry as some kind of a B-team substitute... So that when Paul comes and kind of takes over, 
he will really do something much better, something that only apostles can do, like Paul's going to kind of prophesy or bring words of knowledge or something. So Timothy becomes the kind of the warm-up act for the main event. Now, I don't think that's right. I think what Paul is saying here is that Timothy is to devote himself to the very same things that Paul will do when he comes. How do I know this? Because these are the very things Paul did do. As we learn in Acts 20, at the end of the Ephesian ministry, when he says he taught them the whole counsel of God. And so reading scripture, preaching and teaching are the normal apostolic ministry. There is no B team. There is no higher level. If Paul turned up at Moreland's next week, I think he would do exactly what I'm doing right now. Well, what is that thing then? What is it I'm doing? And what is it? Is it really what Paul had in mind in verse 13? Well, notice in verse 13 that there seem to be three activities which Timothy is to devote himself to. There is the reading of Scripture, preaching, and teaching. Well, there are, there are three activities there, but they're inseparably connected. First, there is the reading of Scripture, the public reading of Scripture. This is where the church simply followed the tradition of the Jewish synagogues and carried it over into the Christian church. But not because people couldn't read for themselves, as is often thought most Jewish people could read. It's much more significant than that. It's because what makes the people of God the people of God is that the word of God is heard. We actually gather to hear the word of God. It is the word of God that gathers us together. It is the word that creates the church. And this is why the word must be read and heard. But the word is not self-explanatory. It needs teaching and preaching. Now these two words, preaching and teaching, should, should not be separated too much. They belong together. People often try and sort of separate them out, but I, I think they belong together. Uh, preaching here literally means a word of encouragement or exhortation. Whereas teaching has the sense of an explanation. Now, what does this mean in practice? Well, you can see what it means by seeing what Paul did in his own ministry. In Acts 13, for example, in the synagogue of Antioch, the scriptures were read, and then Paul is invited to give a word of encouragement. And we might think, well, that, that sounds like a kind of nice, friendly message. Hey, guys, you're all really great. That kind of thing. Let me encourage you. But actually what you get in Acts 13 is an overview of Old Testament history culminating in the death and resurrection of Jesus and the message of the gospel of salvation and forgiveness. So the word of encouragement in Acts 15 is a Bible overview, biblical theology, gospel preaching and application. That I think is what Paul means by preaching and teaching, explaining, expounding the Bible in some detail and pressing home to the listeners how to understand it, how to apply it. So preaching and teaching is much more than imparting information. It means understanding the whole counsel of God, understanding the human condition and how the word of God speaks into that condition, understanding it in the light of contemporary culture, pressing it home with urgency and insight so sin is exposed Hearts are warned, minds are instructed, wills are challenged, and in fact, so that a whole worldview is created and converted. And this, says Christopher Rash in that book I mentioned, will stretch the energies of most pastors. It is no light work, 
But this is what Timothy is to devote himself to. Because notice thirdly, this is to be his overwhelming priority. Look at verse 14. Do not neglect your gift, which was given you through a prophetic message when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Paul is talking here about an event, a time that we don't really have access to, so I don't want to speculate too much about what this particular uh, moment was. The key thing is that Timothy is given, ultimately by the Lord Jesus, a gift, literally a charisma. And it's important that we understand that this gift is not a magic quality or magic ability because he's, he's got to use it. He's got to not neglect his gift. And I think the best way of thinking about this gift is like a, a muscle that you have that you can either use or not use. And if you use your muscles, you strengthen them. If you use your gifts, you get good at that gift. You get better and you grow. And Paul is saying this is to be Timothy's priority, both for Timothy and the church. Remember those Ten Commandments I mentioned? Look now at how almost every one of them is about making the teaching of the word the number one priority. Verse 11, command and teach. Verse 13, devote yourself. Verse 14, do not neglect. Verse 15, be diligent in these matters. Verse 15, let everyone see your progress. 16, watch. All these imperatives are really to do with making this the priority. Timothy, uh, Paul means business here. Timothy is to make teaching the word the great priority of his life. And he wants Timothy to understand that it's going to be hard and he mustn't give up. Now, why does Paul emphasize this so much? Does he think Timothy will shirk his responsibility? Does he think he's a bit of a lazy bones and he has to crack the whip? No. But he knows two realities about leading a church. One, he knows that however well-intentioned Timothy and the church are about hearing the word, a million and one pressing concerns will crowd out and threaten that priority for Timothy and the church. And they will have to find a way, Timothy and the church will have to find a way to partner together to make sure Timothy has the time and the space to devote himself to the one thing that really matters. That's the first thing. And the second thing Paul understands is he understands Timothy's, not timidity, I don't think that's the way to understand Timothy, but Paul understands Timothy's very human sense of paralysis and inadequacy and his own sense of lack of giftedness, particularly in the face of the false teachers. He knows this is a spiritual battle for the hearts and minds of the hearers, he knows that Timothy will face those Saturday night moments when he'll wish he could do anything else. He knows how hard the labor and struggle is, how tempting it will make shortcuts, but he will let nothing detract and distract him from the number one priority of teaching the word. And then the third thing we see is he must do this right to the end in 15 and 16. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. The single-minded devotion to the task is to be Timothy's life's work. To give yourself wholly to them. Think about that word self. It is to be as committed as you can be. Bacon and eggs, 
ask a student afterwards to explain that to you. And the result of this commitment, verse 15, demonstrable progress, which is good news and bad news. It's good news because it means we do not need to have arrived at perfection before we can serve. It's progress that matters. It's the direction of travel. The fact that you can say, I'm not what I could be, but I'm not what I was. But it's also bad news, isn't it? Because it rules out complacency. If you always have to be demonstrating progress, it means you can never rest on your laurels. You've never arrived. And perhaps one of the most dangerous positions you can be in, in leadership and in the Christian life, is to think that you have arrived, that you've got nothing to learn, that you can take your foot off the gas and stop striving and growing. Why is that dangerous? Well, look at verse 16. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them. Because if you do, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. There is the most scary verse in the passage, perhaps in the book. It's about salvation. It's about making it to the end. See, the combination of life and doctrine is what this passage has really been about. Paul has been explaining that the good servant of Jesus must be something and he must do something, and the two are bound together. And there will always be a gulf between those two things, what we believe and how we live. This is what it means to be human. Only Jesus has no gulf. Only the hypocrites and the false teachers deny the gulf. The rest of us know that there is a gulf between what I teach and what I do. But what Paul is saying is don't enjoy the gulf. Don't be happy with the gulf. Keep watch on yourselves so that you can close the gulf and keep doing it. And this self-watchfulness, I think, is important for leaders. It means a certain emotional intelligence about yourself, a self-awareness that you can pinpoint the weaknesses that actually everybody already knows you've got, and you can get to work on them. Watch yourself. Yes, accountability groups have their place. I have, I'm part of several the most important accountability group I'm in are my fellow elders here at Moreland's. And we've been doing a lot of thinking recently in the light of a number of leadership crises and meltdowns about what that actually means to have an accountability between us. But it won't be your accountability group who are accountable to God on the last day. On the last day, each of us will give an account to God alone. And so the servant of Jesus must watch himself. But there's one more thing he must do. And this really is the most important thing. For the sake of his own salvation and for the salvation of his hearers, he must keep going to the very end. Listen to Charles Swindle again. There is no better proof of authentic ministry than perseverance. Ministers don't succeed in ministry because of brains, talent, charisma, or interpersonal skills, ministers succeed by hanging tough through difficult seasons. Ministers persevere through disappointment, so hang tough. Ministers refuse to quit when people criticize them or run after false teaching. Success for the minister is faithfully carrying out the duties of ministry 
day in, day out, season out of season, year after year, regardless of the results. Will you help me to keep going? I'd appreciate that as we work together so that God's word can be central to this church, uh, so that the world can hear uh, the godliness, the message of Jesus Christ. Well, let's conclude then. I said at the start of this chapter that while this is one of the hardest sermons I've ever had to prepare, it is at the same time one of the most important sermons you will ever hear. And can we see now why that is? It's because this is about priorities. It's about what really matters in the end. It's about what lasts in the end, what we think is central and worth pursuing with everything we've got. And so I want to conclude very briefly with a reflection for three groups of people. First, and most obviously, a reflection for the pastors and leaders among us, myself included. This chapter is really an urgent call from Paul to Timothy to lead the church in such a way that the unrelenting focus of the church is the mystery of godliness, the gospel of Jesus Christ who came into the world, who died for our sins, who rose in glory, is now seated at the right hand of God and is now calling people to himself. That is what this is about. That is what, why this matters. That is why leadership matters. Scottish pastor James Stewart uh, writes in his book uh, from the 1930s, Heralds of God, a book for preachers. He says, what makes your calling in the church so urgent and so critical is the fact that human hearts, bombarded with grim complexities and damaging shadows of despair, are crying as never before, is there any word from the Lord? Your task is to confront the rampant disillusionment of the day and smash it with the cross of Christ and shame it with the splendor of the resurrection. It's a great task. It's the greatest of all tasks. It's the hardest of tasks, but there's no greater privilege. So I say to myself and others, keep going. Persevere. Life itself, salvation itself, depends upon it. Secondly, I want to say a word to the younger generation. I'll let you decide in your own mind whether you uh, qualify. But that is, those not yet in positions of leadership or set apart ministry with all of life's major decisions yet to be made. And I want to say to you, there is really just one major decision that you need to make. Are you going to live this life for yourself or for Jesus Christ? Now, it's interesting here that Paul is not somebody who will hold young people back from serving. And I, for one, am thrilled to belong to a church that is full of young people. And I mean children, teenagers, student age, who want to be godly, who want to sit under God's word and serve and grow. It is fantastic. It is wonderful to see, it was wonderful to see and experience the, the seriousness of the students at MYC. It wasn't all paper airplanes. We did do some Bible teaching. But the seriousness with which... They were responding and sitting under and grappling with the word of God. It was fantastic. Wonderful to see people at school who are kind of standing up for Jesus. I heard a, a story of one uh, young person in our church who's in year one and standing up for Jesus. 
in that class setting. Very, very hard. It takes huge courage. So those are the people I'm addressing here. And I think this passage is urging some of you to think seriously about being the Timothys of tomorrow. In one sense, all of you. To make that life decision. Not that everybody's going to be a set-apart, full-time minister, but some of you will. And all of us need to make the decision that we're going to live fully for Christ in this world. So Nathan mentioned last week, careers advice. Well, let me give my bit of careers advice. Don't have a career. That's my bit of advice. Because do you know the word career is from the French word meaning strive headlong in pursuit. So to have a career in the, in the kind of normal sense it's meant, and I know, take this with a pinch of salt, you've got to have a job, you've got to earn a living, and sometimes that means climbing a certain kind of path. But if the word career means strive headlong in pursuit, what most people mean by having a career is that this is the thing you give your life to. Well, there's only one thing that a Christian should strive headlong in pursuit of, the gospel of Jesus. And this is true for all of us, not just the Timothys. All of us should be asking, what can I do for Jesus with the gifts he's given me and the situation I am in, with life stretching before me? And the answer to that for some of you will be, you will be Timothys, you will be the leaders of the next generation. And you've heard from me this morning that it's hard, but it's the best task that we can do. And all of us are involved. And so the third word is to the whole church family. Because remember, the church is listening in, just as the Russians are listening in to everything our government says. The church is listening in to everything Paul is saying to Timothy. So this actually is obviously an urgent plea to the church to be the church whose unrelenting focus is the gospel of Jesus. And to make sure that we are making those things central in our personal lives, in our homes, in our families. I had breakfast with a friend earlier in the week for a bit of mutual prayer and encouragement. And he was asking how things were going. He's not part of this church. And I mentioned uh, both encouragements and challenges. And he said, well, you know, I get to walk out of here and go back to the office. But as a pastor, this is your life. You're all in. And we talked about bacon and eggs. Ask a student. And he's right. It is true. But I said to him, well, but you're all in too, aren't you? And he agreed. As the word is taught and godliness multiplies throughout the church, Jesus is calling each one of us this morning to give ourselves to his cause. Even if you're a visitor, even if you're here for the first time, that is the call of Jesus Christ, to give yourself to his cause, to make him your all-absorbing preoccupation and priority. Yes, this has been a, church, a sermon about leaders. It's a passage about leaders. Leaders matter in God's household, but in the end, leaders are just leaders. Leaders are nothing. Leaders are just servants. This is about Jesus and what he wants. And Jesus wants his church to be led by good servants who guard the truth and build the church and promise salvation that lasts forever. So let's pray that we'll be a church like that.
Heavenly Father, we thank you that the risen Jesus has given gifts to his church, those whose task it is to teach, preach, pray, and equip, so that godliness might be multiplied throughout the church and the gospel clearly held out to the watching world. In your mercy, please ensure that Moreland's church and our partner churches around the bay might always be served by such leaders who reject the shallow froth of false teaching, the appeal of easy shortcuts, the many discouragements of ministry in a fallen world, and their own temptations to complacency and paralysis, and who will doggedly persevere in gospel ministry so that they and their hearers might be saved. And we pray that each one of us here will hear the call of Jesus, who gave his life to us, that we might devote ourselves to training for godliness, which is value now and for the life to come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.